Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It is a great honor to me to be able to stand before you again, to be able to open up the Word of God with a group of believers who simply want to come together to worship and to study God's truth. Would you join me this morning in Revelation chapter 5? In August of 2010, communication specialist Judy Rivers went to her local bank to open up a new account. And as the clerk was sitting there putting in all of Judy's personal information, everything seemed to be going fine. But then the woman behind the desk stopped all of a sudden. It's not a good sign. And then she she frowned. And that's really not a good sign. And then she kind of said, that's odd. There seems to be an issue regarding your social security number. You don't want to hear that. Then the clerk got up and disappeared into the back room. Well, several minutes later, Judy was greeted by the branch manager. Now you know you have a problem. And she came out and said, ma'am, your social security number was deactivated in 2008 due to death. Well, when Judy heard this, she was understandably a little bit upset. And so she arose from the chair and said, you're trying to tell me that I've been dead for two years and no one bothered to tell me. But Judy Rivers is not alone. The office of the inspector general estimates that every year some 12,000, every year this happens, 12,200 U.S. citizens are declared dead by the Social Security Administration due to input errors, due to keystroke errors. And then those affected become like the walking dead, unable to secure a job, make a financial transaction, file taxes. And for months on end, they must endure the nightmare of convincing this large bureaucracy that they have not bit the dust. It was this man, you know him. President Ronald Reagan, who said in 1986 that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The less I have to deal with the government, the better. It is one of the reasons that my family and I chose to move to Alaska. Despite the best efforts of world leaders, we are no closer to world peace than we've ever been. Men have set up all kinds of governments in this world, but men fail. See, it's like this. If the communists are in control, and if you have two cows, the government takes one and gives you part of the milk. But if the socialists are in charge and you have two cows, the government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. If the fascists are in charge and you have two cows, the government takes both and sells you the milk. And if the Nazis are in charge and you have two cows, the government takes both and shoots you. And in a bureaucracy, you can have two cows and the government will take both, shoot one, milk the other, and pour the milk down the drain. But in capitalism, you have two cows, you sell one, and then you buy a bull. I'm a capitalist. 
And it bothers me. It bothers me when I see Christians trying to live off the system instead of work a job. It's disobedience to Scripture because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. There's a lot of lazy people in this land. But even capitalism is corrupted because of the depravity of man. Even that is corrupted. Everything we come up with on earth will fail. No system on earth can bring about lasting peace and prosperity because no one is worthy to rule. There's no human government that can lead and serve as God intends. And no world leader has ever been able to bring about lasting peace. We see this even in the news today. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Caesar Augustus tried it around the time of Christ. He came to power in 27 BC with a dream to create a new era of peace and prosperity in the world. But problems with his health meant that he was not sure how he would live to see it happen. So early on, he wrote his ideas down. You will find out from studying history, he actually wrote his ideas down on a scroll. And he sealed it with seven seals. And then he sought for a worthy successor. He sought for someone who is worthy to open the scroll and implement his ideas for world peace. The search began. The search continues today. People looking for such a world ruler to bring the world together. But this leader won't be found on earth. I invite you to join me in Revelation 5 where we see the search for the one worthy to rule the world. Verse 1 tells us, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, we are picking this right up from chapter 4. And if you weren't with us with chapter 4, go online. It's all online for you. The subject is still what John is seeing in the throne room of God. And it was common in the first century for a person in authority to seal an important document. If the contents of the document need to be kept a secret, it would be sealed. Roman law required that a last will and testament needed to be sealed seven times. They were sealed with either wax or with clay and could only be opened by a qualified person. And this is part of the image that is given in Revelation 5, part of the drama that is taking place. And the very last thing that John saw in the verse before this were the 24 elders and the four living creatures worshiping the eternal creator. But then something catches John's eye. He sees a scroll with seven seals with writing on the inside and writing on the outside held in the right hand of the divine majesty on the throne. Held in the right hand of God the Father on the throne. Now in the ancient world, such a scroll would have been a title deed or last will and testament. Something that could only be opened by a legal redeemer or a rightful heir. And on the outside of these scrolls would be a brief description of what was inside. The way these scrolls were made, not much was typically written on the outside. But the contents of this scroll revealed the events of the future tribulation in the future kingdom of God. And because it was sealed with seven seals, the inside of the scroll could not be read until the seals were broken. But unlike the typical scrolls then with each seal is, is broken here in Revelation, a little more of God's judgment is going to be revealed. John was given a vision of the future. The judgments of God would come to pass. 
And, and they would come to pass when the seals of God were broken. Now Jesus, the Son of God, he will receive his inheritance of a future kingdom from God the Father. And Jesus will receive the title deed to the earth created by the Father through the Son. So get your picture into your mind as we walk through this this morning and understand the sovereignty of God in history and the redemption of man. Here is the future of creation in this scroll, in a scroll, just simply resting there in the hand of the almighty God. Pick it up with verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. A strong angel cries out with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And we have an emotional scene here in heaven. After searching every level of the universe, no one could be found who was qualified. An angel shouts out a challenge for anyone to come forth who is worthy to open the scrolls and its seals. All creation in heaven and earth and under the earth stood motionless and speechless. No one had the ability or authority to open the scroll. And so John wept. But why did he cry? He wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now it highlights for us the insufficiency of man. It highlights the depravity of man, our weakness and inability to control our future and the world around us. See, it is important to understand in the text why John is crying. He's not crying because he's trying to understand the details of the future and no one will tell him. He's not sad about that. He's not crying because of frustrated curiosity. His tears, his weeping is much more profound. John wept because, listen, Christian, if no one could be found that was worthy, then the hopeless condition of man would continue indefinitely. It says John wept. It means here that John wept uncontrollably because without someone worthy to open the scroll, the suffering, the pain, the sickness, the death that we face would never come to an end. See, for more than 60 years, John had placed his hope in Jesus Christ. But if heaven's search for a worthy heir failed, so would his confidence in Christ. Who is worthy? Who's worthy to walk in the presence of the God of the universe and take the scroll out of his hand? Before whom the cherubim cover their faces with their wings. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to open the seals? Meaning, who's worthy to bring God's eternal plan to completion? Who has a life that is so perfect and holy as to be able to approach the throne of God, then take the scroll and break open the seals? Verse 3 gives us utter silence. No one could open it. No one could even look inside. No one in heaven, none of these angels in heaven, and no one on earth. No created being had the ability to approach God and take the scroll from his hand, open the seals, and look inside. Maybe you know this man, Bertrand Russell. He was a famous, very famous British atheist. He wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. 
But in an interview towards the end of his life that was done with the BBC, they asked him what he had to hang on to when death was so close. Listen to his response. He said this, I have nothing. This is at the end of his life. I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. You see, that's why John wept. That is why John wept, because if no one could open the scroll, then there's nothing left for any of us but despair. There's nothing. See, that then becomes the message to the young couple who loses a child. Sorry, all we have is despair. That becomes the message to the old man who just lost his wife of 60 years. Sorry, all we have is despair. John understood the significance of the vision. He understood that if the purposes of God are not fulfilled, then everything in life is just absolutely pointless and meaningless. So John wept, and we pick it up with verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." The mercy and grace of God would never allow his people to be without hope. God's eternal plan will be completed. Stop weeping, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious. He can open the scroll. He can loosen its seven seals. Now, there is some rich, rich language here, and I hope you're tracking with me. There's some rich language here in the text that goes all the way back to Genesis 49 and what Jacob said to his sons. It starts in Genesis 49, verse 1, where it says this, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Jacob was telling his sons about the future. And look at what he says about Judah down in verse 8. He starts, he says, Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Watch until what? Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. See, the scepter in verse 10 is the right to rule. Through the tribe of Judah would come David and the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And notice the last part of verse 10 again. Until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh, not referring to a place here, but to the person who would arise in the tribe of Judah and bring peace to the world. When the promised one... When the Messiah of Israel comes, he will rule the nations. Judah would lead his people. Yes, he would. But from his tribe would come the Messiah. 
So now go back to Revelation 5, and we're going to put this all together. We're still building our argument here. Back in Revelation 5, the elders telling John, he says that Jesus of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, he would open the scroll. He had achieved victory over the enemies of God and had authority to open the scroll. Now, root or offspring of David, this takes us back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Remember that Jesse is the father of David. And it says back there in Isaiah, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, verse 1 of Isaiah is telling us that Jesus would come from the Davidic line, but Isaiah 11:10, Isaiah 11 takes it a step further. It goes deeper. It goes a little further. It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, for his resting place shall be glorious. I want you to notice the title there, Root of Jesse, telling us this is beautiful. It's telling us not just is Christ from the Davidic line, not just that, but he is also, see it, the source of the Davidic line. That's awesome. Jesus Christ is the source of the Davidic line. And one more from Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Lions of the tribe of Judah, root of David. These are both messianic titles steeped in the promises of the Old Testament. That a Messiah would come, that a Messiah would rule. A Messiah with authority to rule because he overcame sin and death and the dark forces of a fallen creation. Now John saw the Messiah in verse 6 as a lamb. Now the lamb is a symbol of Jesus Christ submitting to his sacrificial death as our substitute. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, you guys know this verse, but let's read it. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And of course, we have the teaching from John 1. John 1, referring to John the Baptist, where it says, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. See, the Lamb of God is Christ when he came the first time. Now track this. The Lamb of God is Christ when he came the first time. But who is the Lion of Judah? Well, the Lion of Judah is when Christ will return again with power to judge the world in absolute righteousness. See, the focus in Revelation has now shifted from God the Father on the throne to the Lamb. And the Lamb is standing in the midst of the elders, standing in the midst of the throne in the four living creatures. And the lamb, it says, bore the marks of his death. His sacrifice led to his victory. And now he stands ready to complete his work of judgment. Jesus Christ has conquered. Jesus Christ has prevailed. He's succeeded where no other king has been able. But boy, people have tried. King Canute, about a thousand years ago. Anybody know who he is from history? King Canute. Well, about a thousand years ago, he was a Danish king who conquered Britain. He was a very powerful king in his day. And one day, he got tired of all the flattery that people were giving him as a king. He grew tired of all the the stuff that comes with being a king. And so he took his throne and he ordered his throne to be placed by the sea. And the tide was coming in and it was threatening to drown him. And he sat there and he commanded the waves to stop. 
And obviously they didn't. He did it because he was trying to make a point about kings and about God. And it's reported that he said this after. Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of that name but God, whom heaven, earth, and sea obey. And he was absolutely right about that, wasn't he? Mark 4.39 says this about Jesus. It says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus has done what no other king can do or has done. Theodosius the Great there's a name from history over 1,600 years ago as the emperor of Rome. He once opened up all the prisons, all the prisons. He released all the prisoners in his day. But even he knew his powers were limited because then he said, and quote, now would to God I could open all the tombs and give life to the dead. He couldn't because it's something that only Jesus Christ can do because he is the resurrection and the life. He will raise the dead someday. He's able to do what no other king has done. He alone is worthy to rule because he has conquered. He is the Lion of Judah. Now John, in our vision here in Revelation 5, John sees the Lamb with wounds from the cross, with seven horns representing the fullness of his power. He is the all-powerful warrior and king. Seven eyes representing the wisdom of God and his discernment. Seven spirits of God, which we've identified before as the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God gives Christ perfect insight into his creation. Now this is apocalyptic writing. The metaphor is mixed. John is not telling us that Jesus looks like a half lion and half a lamb. He's not saying that, so get that picture out of your head. The lion is the lamb, and the wounds of the lamb are still to be seen. John saw the lamb take the scroll from the father on the throne. The father has granted the son the right to judge. Now watch the worship of the lamb that starts in our text with verse 8. It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. You remember back in Matthew chapter six, verse 10, Jesus asked his people to pray this. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the kingdom of God was the hope of Israel. It should be the hope of the church. And with the Lamb of God now taking the scroll from the Father, this future seen in heaven looks to the time when the judgments of God and the kingdom of God will be ushered in once and for all. And so we see here in Revelation 6, heaven just now erupts. Heaven erupts into a joyful, joyful song of praise and worship, which includes the prayers of the saints, represented as bowls full of incense, the worship of God's people through prayer and praise is received by God in heaven. Christ is worthy because he alone has been found worthy to judge man and usher in his kingdom. Now, last week, if you were with us, we walked through the identity of the elders, believers from the church age, singing a new song in heaven, a new song because it was different from the song of chapter four. In chapter four, God was praised 
because he's the author of all, the God of creation. But now the song is a new song because it's a song of redemption, singing now that Christ is worthy to take the scrolls and he can open the seals. Redeemed to us by God, by his blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. See, faithful believers in Christ, faithful believers in Christ will be made kings and priests to God, reigning with the Savior on earth. This is an impressive heavenly choir. This choir is pretty awesome. It includes the four living creatures and the elders, elders from the church age, will be singing about the Lamb, not just about those who enter into his kingdom, but those who will also be privileged and rewarded to rule with Christ because of their faithfulness to him. And just in case there's anyone listening this morning who thinks that Jesus is not God, explain this song of worship to me then. Because if Jesus is not God the Son, then this song would be utter blasphemy. But it's the worship and it's the praise of heaven for the Creator. There's an eternal joy represented here because God's plan will be fulfilled perfectly. His purpose in redemption, His plan for the ages, God's plan will be fulfilled. Heaven is bursting out in applause. And the reason that this is so important is because if none of the purposes of God and redemption are going to be accomplished, you can pray, Christian, till the cows come home, but your prayers are not going to be answered. That's the truth. But if Jesus Christ has been victorious, if this stuff is true through his death and resurrection, if Jesus has died and risen from the grave, if the lamb slain is found worthy to open the scrolls, then pray, Christian, pray to heaven. Pray, pray, pray. We have incentive to pray because we can know from Revelation that God will reign. And so read these beautiful words with me starting in verse 11. It says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. After the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing their praises to the Lamb, a great number of angels, it says. The number for 10,000, remember, was the largest Greek number that could be expressed. So it's saying, more angels that could ever be counted began to worship with a loud voice. Think of the largest sports stadium you could think of. Think of the largest one, the biggest one. Think of the biggest one in your mind you can think of and imagine it with angels worshiping God, but then multiply at times at least a thousand, at least a thousand. You see, this great scene left an impression on John. Could you imagine? Glory to God. The lamb is not only worthy to judge mankind, he is worthy of all the power and riches of heaven. And the angels in heaven recognize his right to rule. This is looking forward to the rule of Christ, which starts at his second coming. And it brings us back to the teaching of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Some of you remember these words in Daniel 7, where it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And on that day, all of creation will give the Father and the Son the glory and the honor that they deserve. Which is why we see in Revelation every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, crying out, blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. To this we join the heavenly course and we proclaim, Amen. Amen. John saw this wonderful place in a vision. He saw it in a vision. But this is a real place. This is a real place where God is worshipped. It started back before time when the angels in heaven were first created. They worshipped God. And this is going to continue on and on and on into eternity. Perhaps no one captured some of these thoughts better. And we're going to close with this than Baptist pastor S.M. Lockridge back in 1976 when he preached his famous sermon, That's My King. Allow me to quote part of it this morning, speaking of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful description of our Savior. He's the King of Israel. That's a national king. He's the King of righteousness. He's the King of the ages. He's the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He's the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my King. Do you know him? Do you know my King? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's God the son. He's the sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. The fundamental doctrine of historic theology. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the only one able to supply all our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He forgives the sinners. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He regards the age. That's my king. Do you know him? My king is a king of knowledge. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He is the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. His promises is sure. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. And he's irresistible. The heavens 
of heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He's always been and he will always be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and no successor. There's nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You, you can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory because all the power belongs to my king. Thine is the power and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all his. Thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And how long is that? Forever and ever, ever and ever. And when you get through with all the evers, then you have. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. And we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.